Listener Production. This was never about people not liking me or people going online and saying they thought I was a flog. That's part and parcel of working in the public eye and that's completely fine. But this was about things that were written and sent to me that took me to some really dark places. And when I think about the fact that what we've done might stop that from happening to other people down the track and might save lives, it will save lives, in fact, makes me very emotional. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. TV and radio star Erin Molan is well known to many Australians. She's been the face of rugby league broadcasting for close to a decade and has now made the switch to breakfast radio as she brings up her young daughter. I've had a ball sharing a few drinks with Erin over the years. I also marvel at Erin's work ethic, resilience and ability to get things done. God, it's great to see you, beautiful. It is so good to see you too in the flesh. I see you online a lot and I hear you clearly, but to see you in person is so lovely. You're such a special soul and what I love about you is you're open. You share Mm. so much of yourself with all of us in such a big-hearted, generous way. Mm. Have you always been like that? I probably have privately. Erin, away from media, I've always been a very open book, a very open with my family. In a public sense, I guess you get to the stage where you, it's funny because in some ways I probably should be more guarded now than I ever have been as your profile grows, as commentary surrounding your life and who you are and and what you say and what you do grows. Potentially, I should be more guarded, but I feel like I'm probably less at this stage. And I, I look at what I do for a living, which is predominantly at the moment breakfast radio. And you can't do that unless you're really an open book. You're on air for four hours every morning. You've got listeners who tune in every morning who start to get to know you and feel like they know you. And if you're not genuine and open, they can tell straight away. And a lot of your content is what happens in your own life. This last year and a half has been trying to get the balance between respecting, well, my partner at the time when I started, Sean, who's a policeman, so a homicide detective. So by the nature of his job, he has to be very careful and quite private. I've got a little girl now who I'm very conscious will be reading things when she's older and will see things that I've said. But also, you know, if she wants mum to take her on a holiday and pay the mortgage, then she's got to understand as well that there are parts of her life that I deem appropriate to share and I do. Whilst it sounds like I'm just speaking off the cuff, I'm also very conscious of the things I choose to share when it brings in other people. When it's myself, I'm really just an open book. And you mentioned Sean, who I've been lucky enough to meet over the years, and you've split up with him. Yes, we did, yes. And that must have been 
I mean, it's hard anyway, I think, Mm. when a relationship breaks down, even more so when it's public, when you have to share it with the public. I I guess I've never gone through a breakup with a child and that was the hardest part of this one. I mean, it's always hard when you break up with someone and even if you both get to the stage where you, you both know it's not working, if you were deeply in love with someone, the fact that that ended is always really, really sad. And I guess the one thing with Sean and I is that we didn't go to events. We didn't post each other on Instagram. We were always very private by nature in our relationship. So from that perspective, I felt because we were so private and never courted media attention and and didn't do things publicly that in some way we were legitimately allowed to say our relationships ended, you know, thanks for all the support, but that's where the story ends. I don't think we, we didn't feel like we owed anyone else an explanation. And I've never really given one and I never, I'll never i never go into details in terms of why it didn't work out. That's such an immensely private thing. He's the father of my daughter. He's someone I was very in love with for a long period of time, someone I was planning on marrying, someone that will be in my life for the rest of my life because he's my little girl's dad. And I'm in a position where I have a voice and a microphone and a big audience and he doesn't. So from that perspective as well, I just don't think it would be fair for me to ever go into detail the hard part, absolutely. The breakdown of your family. You grow up and you you, you think that, that something will be forever and when you have a little girl, and I look at my parents, I've just celebrated 50 years. You know, they're amazing. They're, they're still very much in love and such a beautiful couple. And I wanted that for myself. I wanted that for my daughter. And I guess the hard part is that that's not going to be her life. And I treasured having mum and dad there every day. And for her, that's not not going to happen. But she now has two parents who are very happy apart and love her more than life. So it's been challenging. And I think, what are we, we're maybe eight or nine months down the track, maybe even less actually, maybe, when was it, August last year. And I'm still not used to it. And I don't think I'll ever get used to not having her with me every night, I think, as a mum. I feel like it's my job, it's my life duty is to protect her and and be with her all the time. So that's something that I don't think I'll ever get used to and I will continue to struggle with when I don't have her. But um, I know she's with her dad who she loves. So so you didn't even have to make me cry. I'm doing it on my own. Oh, honey, Um, give me your hand. But you know what? That's why I marvel at you because you are so brave and Mm. you're true to who you are. And for many of us in our lives, people are frightened to do that. And by being true to who you are, by deciding what is going to be right for you and your family, you're setting yourself up to be as happy as you possibly can, along with your darling daughter and Sean too. And I also know, even though, as you say, it is hard to be apart from your beautiful daughter, the times that I had with my dad separately and then with mm. my mum separately means I have the most extraordinary relationship with both of them yeah. as individuals as opposed to seeing them in a dysfunctional partnership. No, you're completely right. And I think that was a big thing with even when I, as I said, I, I still get very upset when I say goodbye to her, but how much harder it would be if she didn't want to go to her dad or if I wasn't confident when she was with her dad that she was in a safe, loving, incredible space. And I'm so confident of that times a million. So I'm very blessed in that way. I think it's just your motherly instinct. And I I think back to even the way, dad was away a lot with the army. 
And I think mothers tend to be that more nurturing. I'm very, look, I'm a complete softy when it comes to her. Sean uh, is lots of fun, but if she's being naughty, Sean will tell her, whereas I'm incapable of any form of discipline. So I I just, look, it probably is good for her development to have a bit of both because <laughs> now I'm trying to learn how to give her a bit of discipline and I am pathetically weak. She will ask for chocolate and I'll say, no, you've got dinner in 20 minutes. She'll ask again, I'll say, no. Then she'll yell at me and I'll say, how many pieces? Take them all. <laughs> like, I'm awful. That isn't awful. Let's reframe it and say that you just have a beautiful big heart. Yes. And I like chocolate too. Yes. It means I get a piece as well. And also it means you get a bit of peace and quiet. Thank you. Yes, which I'm a huge advocate for. And, <laughs> and sometimes you've got to do whatever it is that gets you through the hour, the day, Completely. or the night, Absolutely. especially when they're small and, mm. and dare I say, even as they get older, <laughs> that, it, it doesn't change. I know. And it's funny because I used to, before I had a child, I remember going into hair and makeup at Channel 9 and saying to beautiful Mundi, Amanda, how are the kids? And she'd kind of look at me with this blank expression and say, alive. <laughs> And I'd go, God, that's a really low base. Like, wow. And now I've got a child. I'm like, wow, that is, that is, you are kicking ass if you're reaching that. You know, that, that is, that is not a bare minimum. That is winning. Of <laughs> course know? it's survive. winning. Survive. Yeah. Just survive. And whatever it takes. I mean, I yeah. remember, I mean, this probably isn't such a proud mothering <laughs> moment of mine, but I had to make some phone calls and they were work phone calls and they yeah. were for some pre-recorded interviews. And Somehow kids sense oh, when you're know. when you're on the phone or Absolutely. you need to do something, they're suddenly there. Yep. <laughs> and I locked myself in my wardrobe and I threw smarties out through the doorway <laughs> <laughs> to try and keep my girls quiet. I have done exactly with smarties. Don't exactly. you reckon? I literally just was in the cupboard. I was and just throwing. In fact, I just had cheesels. Um, Doritos, the whole thing, and they were on the kitchen floor and I, I think I'd seen a cockroach there the night before and she's sitting there eating and I could not have given a tinker's cast. I didn't care. And she's fine, you see? I completely. I mean, you know, fine's a strong word, but she's going okay. No, she she's actually so incredible and that was for Sean and I the biggest thing was was managing her and making sure she was okay and it's just been amazing to see. I think, you know, there's never a perfect age but I look at she was three when we split and I kind of think if she'd been a newborn, to not have both of you there together would be so heartbreaking. I mean, it's heartbreaking anyway, but so heartbreaking. If she'd been a bit older, like you were, to really understand what was happening and to have more experience in that family unit, so heartbreaking. But I feel like it's almost the perfect age in that she didn't quite understand what was happening. She felt loved and secured wherever she was. And now she has no real memory of us living together. It's mummy's house, daddy's house, this and that. And when, you know, Sean came over for dinner last week and I made bolognese poorly, very cooking like you, my darling, is not my strength. But I just, she's sitting there and she's so excited to see us together and she loves it when the two of us are together and, you know, we give each other a hug before we go and she loves that. But when he's not there, she doesn't say, I wish daddy was back here or was living here because she doesn't actually remember that really. So I feel like, yeah, not that you'd say to someone, well, look, if you're thinking of doing it, plan it for this time. But I feel like it, it was as good a time as any. And I think it's a credit to both of you of how you're managing it because that's grown up. Oh, and, I, and let me tell you, it, it, I think both of us would be in our rights to not be like that. You know, any relationship, there's so many elements of it that are difficult, particularly once it ends. And if we didn't have Eliza, I'm sure it would be a very different story. I'm not going to give details, but just the first, say, six weeks, 
were incredibly difficult and looking at my little girl's face and not understanding why we weren't acting the way we normally would with each other was so heartbreaking that I just said, enough, come have a wine. We sat down together and had a wine and that was the start of just this incredible position we're in now, which is chatting, uh, hanging out together with our little girl and just being in a position where we still support each other, where we we love and adore her and she's the focus of everything, but we can enjoy each other's company. And that's so important for me and so important for our little girl. So it's, yeah, it, it, to be honest, I always hoped I'd be like this if things didn't work out and I had children and you know what you're supposed to do and you, you, you see movies and they talk about putting the kids first. I didn't genuinely know if I'd be capable of doing that depending on the circumstances, but I'm immensely proud that both of us have been able to do this and she will be the winner, Eliza will be the winner out of that and so will we. You know, it's not pleasant doing it the other way. This is much better for everyone and it's, yeah, something I'm really proud of. You kind of take my breath away sometimes, Erin, because you wear your heart on your sleeve. I read a headline about something bad happening and I am a mess. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm But that's a good thing. Not not about being a mess but I think you wear your heart on your sleeve Mm. but then... You walk the walk in the sense of, you know, I think about what you've done with online bullying and the legislation that you now have in federal parliament, mm. thanks to you, mm. I just think is phenomenal. Tell me a little bit about that and that process. Oh, thank you. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I look at at myself and in some ways I am so emotional and I wear my heart on my sleeve. But then there's this other side of me that comes to life, not all the time, but when I feel strongly enough about something and I pick my battles well and truly because we don't have time to to fight everything, that sometimes surprises me with how tough and how resilient I can be. And I have a very healthy sense of perspective. I understand that there are people in the world doing it really, really tough. But I guess what was the catalyst for all of this in the online space was not so much the years of abuse that I was subjected to and it was horrific, but it was getting to the stage where I started to see that the people were taking their lives, that little kids in school were taking their lives. And once I started to realise that actually it hurt me a lot and I'm pretty strong and robust, I'm battle hardened in this space. And sometimes I felt incapable of dealing with it. And I started to think, wow, someone's got to do something. You know, in every other area of our lives, there are laws and there are regulations. And so there should be, it dictates the way we live our everyday lives. We don't walk down the street and clobber someone because we know there are consequences. You know, we don't steal because we know there are consequences. Few do, but most are caught and they pay a price. But in the online space, it was just this free for all. There were no consequences. So people who were that way inclined, who were nasty or who wanted to hurt you or who wanted to threaten you or who had basically nothing else to do, there were no consequences for their actions. So why would they stop? If they derived some kind of sick pleasure out of it, they just kept going. And I think for me that the real time that I said enough is enough is looking at Anthony Seabold and what he went through as the Broncos coach. And his story in a nutshell was essentially there were rumours being uh, published online on different social media sites. And all untrue. All and all untrue. And horribly all hurtful, disgusting. Brought his family into it. His daughter struggled immensely. His wife struggled immensely. And he can tell his story of the hurt it caused, but I can assure you 
it was severe and it is ongoing. And I remember looking at that and thinking, nobody deserves that, nobody. And how the hell can these people do this and there be no consequences, no price paid, no one holding them to account? And I thought if I see one more quote from someone saying, just get offline, then I was going to go absolutely crazy because that to me is such complete bullshit and excuse my language, but we would not tell someone, shut down your shop just so no one comes in and steals anymore. No, no, we would arrest the people who steal, put them in jail, and it would be a deterrent that others wouldn't do it. We know the laws exist. But in the online space, we're telling people who, online's not a luxury anymore or something, you know, that that 1% of us do for fun. You can't live your life without being online. Anthony Seabold didn't have social media, but his life was still ruined by what was written on social media. So you can even try and argue, oh, I don't have Instagram or Facebook. It doesn't mean you're not vulnerable to attacks on there that can damage you and your family immensely. We do our banking online. We do our emails. COVID, lockdown. Kids are learning online. A year three teacher sent me an email saying, Erin, the first two hours every day are not spent doing English, maths, geography. It's spent dealing with the fallout of the bullying online the night before. And that made me feel sick. Year three. We're not talking about year seven or year nine. Year three. I think from a a parent perspective, I I thought about my daughter and I just thought I'm in a position here where I will use every contact I have, I will use my dad, I will use everything in my means to try and instigate some change here. And I didn't think I'd have a chance in hell, to be honest with you. I thought I'd go to a few meetings, I'd, I'd say a few things and then it would go away like a lot of other stuff. And, you know, my dad's a politician, but they're not renowned for always following through, are they? Uh, but no, this was incredible. Everyone was so passionate about it. There were a lot of other people who shared their stories and and we saw change. And I talk about being proud of, of the fact that Sean and I have an amicable relationship with our daughter and a great relationship. But I look at that moment at Parliament House and I took my daughter along when that law was passed, not for publicity, not she, she didn't appear anywhere, but I wanted to be able to tell her when she was old enough to understand that that mum did something a little bit special. Oh. And mum, I guess the reason I get emotional about it, and obviously I've just told you I get very emotional about a lot of things, but this was never about people not liking me or people going online and saying they thought I was a flog. That's part and parcel of working in the public eye and that's completely fine. But this was about things that were written and sent to me that took me to some really dark places. And when I think about the fact that what we've done might, stop that from happening to other people down the track and might save lives. It will save lives. In fact, makes me very emotional. It makes me emotional hearing you well, talk in this way. This Jess as well. Because of what you've done, it actually, as you say, there's a consequence. Yes. And we can point to that and say, no, this is not all right. And 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 I have so much to thank you for, mm. not only personally, well yes, mm. very much personally, but also I think on behalf of families right across the country because it's, I think, one of the hardest things I find being a parent is we want to protect our kids. Absolutely. We want to help them grow, experience the world, but we also want to protect them from some vile predators, yes. hideous people. I'm so thankful for you and what you've done. It does save lives and it's not just paying lip service. You've turned something that has been awful for you and made it a positive in the sense of it not happening now to more people. So so. for that, I will always love you and just think you're a warrior.
And another thing, you know, listening to you talk there about what you had to be exposed to and you say, oh, well, it's just when you're in the public eye, that's okay. But it's not okay. And, you know, you've worked in rugby league for a long time and what you had to endure was just despicable and it makes me so mad. It's awful, but you just get exposed to so much of it that after a while it doesn't hurt you in the same way, which is good in one aspect because it's less upsetting, but on another level you should never become comfortable with accepting the kind of things that a lot of people have to accept. And I was the first woman to host the footy show and did that for six or seven years. And, and look, I loved it. It was amazing. First woman on continuous call team, which was incredible. First woman in rugby league to do a lot of things. And there were some incredible women before me who, who have done amazing things. But I guess I came along at a time when the networks were ready to give someone an opportunity. And, and I was the right person for the job. And I believe that very, very strongly. Channel 9 is not a charity. We all know that. I wouldn't have been there for as long as I was had I not been really good at my job and had I not had a fair chunk of the audience that enjoyed what I did. But there were sections that didn't think that I should be there and that's absolutely fair enough. No, it's not fair enough. Look, (laughs) Jesse, if they, if, you know, not everyone's going to like you and if people watched me and and didn't like what I brought or or didn't particularly enjoy my humour or didn't, didn't enjoy my insights, that's fine. What wasn't fine was when it was purely based on the fact that I was a woman or that I hadn't played rugby league. That's when it wasn't fine. Maybe not if they just thought it to themselves, but when they decided to share it or when they decided to use abuse as a way of communicating that. And what struck me so early on when I started on the footy show was that the criticism wasn't about what I'd said or the way that I'd delivered it as a broadcaster or that I'd gotten something wrong when I spoke about a particular injury or a team. It was always that I was a girl. I didn't know what I was talking about. I'd never played rugby league. And, you know, I'd look around that newsroom and look around Channel 9 and look at Simon Boda, who's been a police reporter for so, so long and, and one of the best in the country. He's never been a policeman, nor has he been in jail. I look at the court reporters. Most, well, I think none of them have been in jail or ever been incarcerated or ever been through a trial, yet they were fully qualified to cover their rounds. You know, you, you can be an expert in something having not done it yourself. And I never pretended to be a legend of the game. I never was. I always knew exactly what my role was. And my role was to host and to get the best out of the blokes sitting on either side of me. And now, in the past few years, the women, the incredible women like Alana Ferguson, Rowan Sims, former players who now commentate and host and do amazing things, that was my role. I was never there to say, well, back in 1972 when I scored that try, you know, I never tried to be anything that I wasn't. And I can hand on heart from the day that I started at Channel 9 in rugby league, like me or or, or not like me, I didn't want to say loathe because the thought of people loathing me is like, oh God, I'm sure some <laughs> of them do. In fact, I know some of them do. But like me or loathe me, I was always exactly who I am. I never tried or pretended to be anything else. And, you know, I had an absolute ball. I had a great time. There were really tough moments and there were elements that that I'm happy to have moved on from, absolutely. But by and large, I got given amazing opportunities and, you know, did something that I look back on and, and am immensely proud of. And also you worked very hard. Absol- I wish I was more talented, Jess, and me. You know, then I wouldn't have had to have worked as hard as I did. But you are talented. Mm. And the thing is, no one is good at something by not working at it. You don't just suddenly arrive and then it all falls into place. No. You 
said yes to pretty much every opportunity. You threw yourself into situations and you went for it. I absolutely did. And from day dot, the second I got my first job in TV and I was 21 years old and I'd gone to an audition and I was awful, but I'd annoyed the bloke for essentially six months. And finally, I think it was either take out a police order or give me a job. And he basically said, if I give you a two-minute segment on the food show, will you leave me the hell alone? (laughs) And that's how I got my first start. And that was my first also, I guess, um, real experience of of just annoying the crap out of someone until they gave me an opportunity. And I utilised that as time went on. But you're right. From that moment, I fell in love with the art of telling stories, of communicating, of writing. And, and as you know, when you start regionally, you're doing everything yourself basically and it's a great space to learn in and to um, hone your craft. And I absolutely loved it. And the one thing I always was certain of, whether my my look was right or my writing wasn't developed or my voice needed work and all of those, you know, they all needed work and all needed to be developed as I went through, I always was certain that no one else would ever have worked harder than me. And I still to this day, you, I, I do Sky News now twice a week and I sit there and I've written six pages of handwritten notes for the four minutes that I might be on air. I probably won't use one of them. But I know that if I stop doing what got me there, then I'm not going to stay there for that long. So before a footy show, I'd write 10 pages of notes and Fatty would come and sit next to me and kind of look over and, and go, oh, I forgot, you know, God. And, and it's true. And he was a legend. So he could he could do do what he liked, tell his stories. He'd done that show for 30 or 40 years. For me, for me to be the best that I could be and to be confident and comfortable and to do my job really well, I had to know that I'd ticked every single box and that I'd worked my ass off prior to every single show. And as I said, I wouldn't use 95% of it, but the one time I needed something that I hadn't prepared for then that would be something that would be given a lot of attention and would be because I'm a girl and I hadn't played. So I've always had this mentality of always just working my ass off prior to anything and doing all the notes and everything, much more so than I'd ever need, just because I knew I'd be more relaxed and off the cuff on air if I'd done the work. And I think that's a good lesson for everyone really, that Mm. often people think, oh, you just land a job and it's all easy and it all just comes naturally, but it doesn't. And everything takes work if you want to get to a certain place, I oh, think, in your life, doesn't it? Even as you, even if you're immensely talented, you, you look at footballers and some of the, the saddest stories are those who had so much talent but for whatever reason, and not, not always because they were lazy, sometimes because they were lazy, but sometimes there are other issues, but didn't reach their full potential. In most cases, if you're willing to put in the work, then you can almost do anything. And what a wonderful thing that is. Uh, imagine looking at anything in the world and thinking, if I'm willing to put in the work and do what it takes, and it, you don't have to be rich, you don't have to have privilege, you don't have to have contacts. If you're willing to work your ass off and keep your eye on that prize, then almost always you can achieve it, which is an incredible thing in our part of the world anyway. Not every country is, is as lucky as we are. And you've achieved that. One thing that I found interesting was you applied, did you do six university courses or and then you <laughs> yes. dropped out six times? Of all of them. And, Jess, it was always after Hex cut off, <laughs> much to my mother's complete displeasure in the early days. And it wasn't on purpose, but I think it would always be right on the day that, that you know, the day after that because I think you had to be maybe enrolled for four weeks or something and then you, you got charged Hex for that semester, for that unit, and I would always wait. So I've basically paid for a degree and I have one unit to my name, which was one that I did via correspondence years later, a political unit. So, yeah, six times I dropped out. And this is a funny thing that prior to getting that first job, 
at Channel Vision, the little pay TV station, I was a complete opposite to what I am now. And I tell parents this all the time. I don't, you know, encourage their children to drop out of uni six times, but I do say to a lot of parents I talk to who say, I've got an 18-year-old who just has no direction, doesn't know what she wants to do, drops out of uni, quits her job, et cetera, et cetera. I reckon I would have had three times as many jobs that I quit after a week. I remember getting a job at an ice skating rink and they wanted me to mop. And I remember just getting the mop and, and saying to the guy, oh, sure, I've just got to go to the car and get my nose sprayed. So I still had sinusitis back then. I had it back then. <laughs> and never going back, I was oh. so, I had no commitment. I was lazy. I had no desire to do anything other than hang out with my mates, shop, have fun, you know, just be silly. But it was when I got the job that I wanted and the thing I found I was so passionate about is when my entire perspective just changed 180 degrees and I then became this person who was so driven, so dedicated, so committed, the complete opposite of what I was. And that happened by literally finding the thing that I loved. And prior to that, I was totally the opposite. So it's funny, once you find what it is that fills your cup and makes you happy and what it is that you derive joy from, and then you discover you can actually earn a career out of that, a very poor one for the first 10 to 15 years, to be honest, but enough to get by. Bob's your uncle. You're flying. And sometimes that might take people till they're 40. Sometimes they might find it at 14. But I just think young people, you know, you can afford to have a lot of moments where you might feel like you're letting people down or letting yourself down, but that's all part and parcel. And once you find that thing that you love and that brings you joy, life will be amazing. How did you know that what you found was what was going to bring you joy? I think the first time I sat in that studio and did the audition is when I knew that it was what I wanted to do. I wasn't good at it. I was awful. I was so nervous. I was horrendous. But I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I just loved telling stories and I loved debating and communicating. And writing was a was probably the first thing I fell in love with. And I was lucky enough to get a job uh, writing in the Governor General's speechwriting department. And that was a couple of years I worked there and probably one of the the greatest experiences I've had in a professional capacity just to be part of an environment and, and an institution that is so revered and respected and to somewhat contribute to that was amazing. So, yeah, I just, I, I just, I loved it. You've got so many different skills. I mean, I didn't know that you worked as a speechwriter. Mm. <laughs> and and also, you know, there's speculation that you might go into politics. <laughs> is, is that what is next for you? Oh, it's a great question. It certainly wasn't for now. And it was incredibly flattering to be asked and to have conversations And look, he's spoken about this publicly, so I don't feel like I'm saying anything that's not already out there. But, you know, to have the Prime Minister want you to run is really, really flattering. And I'm someone who's loved politics my whole life, who was in Indonesia in 98 when that Suharto regime fell and you you watched a country decide that democracy was the way forward and you watched them fight and you watched them give up their lives to suck to university shootings. And I fell in love with, with politics and democracy and freedom and, and all the things that that we enjoy here and, and often take for granted. So incredibly flattering. But something that happened to me probably when I had Eliza, but probably more so when Sean and I separated, was this absolute clarity. And I feel like a wanker using the word clarity because I'm not overly 
is it spiritual or in but that down, way? Don't downplay that. No, you're right. Don't that, downplay uh, it. No, you're right, and I shouldn't because I, I just had this moment of the number one priority for me and the thing that fills my cup and makes me the happiest is being a mum to my little girl. And I thought now more than ever, given our family unit, you know, no longer exists in the way that it, it was before, it, it now exists in a very different way, but I thought my number one priority here is to be with my little girl and to be the best mother I can be. And that doesn't mean not working and not deriving joy professionally because for me without work, I almost feel like I don't have an identity without that. And not in a, in a sad way in that I'm nothing without my job, but in a way that I, I love it and I'm passionate about it and it drives me and it gives me. And you're good at it. And you know what? I am. I am really good at it. And, and that's not comfortable for me to say because I'm so self-deprecating and my mother hates my self-deprecation. She, she thinks I should do it so much less and she's probably right. She is right. She I'm going to be your mum here and well, say. You're far too young to be my mother. But, but, but yes. as women, yeah, it's, it, it can be uncomfortable to wear Completely. that, to actually go, you know what, I'm good at this. Absolutely. And when someone tells me or when I tell myself, I'm going to own that. And, and you know what? Men by nature, and I don't want to gender stereotype here because not all of them, but men by nature will tell you they're good when they're not, whereas women who are brilliant at something more often than not will, will not accept that or own that. So you're you're right. I'm I'm very good at what I do and I love it, but my priority is my little girl and my greatest fear in life, apart from her not being healthy and happy, is me looking back in five years and thinking, there was a, a period of time there where she didn't come first and to live with that regret. I feel mother guilt every day. I think everyone does. But if I consciously make a decision that I might regret later, to the thought of living with that or thinking I missed out on, on the most beautiful, precious years of her life because I was more concerned with this, this or this, I'd never forgive myself. So for me to go into politics now, that needs to be not a priority over her because it never will be, but that needed to that needed more of me than I was ever willing to give. And, and to be honest, the jobs I have now are amazing because I feel like I work when she sleeps. I still feel like I'm a full-time mum. You know, I've got girlfriends who work nine to five, drop their beautiful bubbers at preschool at seven, pick them up at 6 p.m. five days a week. You know, I get home at 10 and I do two nights a week and she's with her dad those two nights a week. And other than that, I feel like I'm as well as, as a, a professional in, in a couple of different spaces, I feel like I'm a full-time mum, which is the most important job to me. And and the Prime Minister understood that and was really, was actually incredible. He, he tried a few times. He's persistent. I'll give him that. He's very persistent. But I was very grateful that he understood my decision and I have absolutely no regrets in that regard. Down the track, maybe. But I also look at some of the, uh, <laughs> some of, some of the things that they go through and think, my God, you could not pay me enough to ever go into that space because I feel like I can help and make change outside of politics, which I've shown that I can do. Oh, you absolutely can. And as you say, it might be something down the track. But yes. before we go, I do have to ask you about dating. <laughs> <laughs> what is that like? Are you dating again? Look, I am a little bit, yes. And it's it's really different, actually. Dating with a child is very different to how it was before. Yes, I am. It's funny, I, I'm more protective of it than I thought I would be. And there will be a time, I guess, when something is kind of serious enough that it will become public just by nature of probably a paparazzi shot or something like that. But yeah, I, I love love, yes. And I, I don't need 
anyone and I don't need love in the form of a partner. I've got the best parents in the world, the best family, the best little girl in the world. But I love the good parts of a relationship and having that person that's your person and that loves you and supports you. And Sean was that person for a long time. And Daniel, my ex before Sean was that person for five or six years and all all wonderful, incredible people who aren't my person anymore. But I'd love to find my next person that hopefully will be that person for the next 20, 30 years. And if not, just, you know, just a pash should be nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, whatever. Especially a good pash. uh, You don't want a spitty one, you want a good one. (laughs) Just a good solid pash. There's there's not much better apart from wine. (laughs) Well, whoever that is will be a very lucky person Mm. because you are such a special soul, Erin, and I love you to bits and thank you for being you because you make such a difference and I hope you realise that. Oh, that's really special and coming from someone like you who has made such a difference. What I love so much about you in a similar way to me with some of these really tough experiences, you used them as a way to help other people and your books and your openness and your ability to be so raw saves so many lives and I hope you know the difference that you make as well because I look up to you as someone who's just so incredible I love Pete I love you I love your girls and I'm so blessed to have you guys in my life so thank you for having me and thank you for being amazing see now you make me cry I love you you. beautiful girl thank you so much thank you gorgeous Well, I'm still wiping away my tears. There was a lot of hand-holding through that chat. Can't you hear through Erin's beautiful voice just her resilience, her generosity, and she's smart. She works so hard. I mean, I could talk on and on about how much I love this incredible young woman. You, of course, though, can hear more from Erin if you're in Sydney. You can hear her on the Today FM breakfast show. And for everyone else, search for Husie, Ed and Erin on the Listener app. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.